0: Open your Bibles, please, to Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4. This week we're going to celebrate one of my favorite holidays of the year after Christmas and after Easter. The holiday that we celebrate this Friday is one of my favorite, and it's not Halloween, it is the Reformation. And so today the Sunday before October 31 is Reformation Sunday. And I want to take a moment this morning to focus your heart and minds once again upon the Reformation and upon what God did in those years that we are, know as the Protestant Reformation. I believe we need to know church history. And I believe we need to understand church history. And I believe one of the most glorious moments in church history was the Reformation. And so We want to take some time this morning to preach on another component of this wonderful event Nearly 500 years ago a monk and a mallet changed the world The date was October 31, 1517 And it was on that day that Martin Luther nailed his now famous 95 theses To the door of the church in Wittenberg, Germany And those 95 theses were really complaints. Complaints against the abuses of the the church of his day, and a list of complaints that actually served as a call to reform, to reformation. You know that Martin Luther was a monk. He was a monk within the Roman Catholic Church, the state church, the, 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 the church that was dominant in that day, the medieval Roman church. He was a professor of theology. And as a professor, he studied many things, including the word of God and Martin Luther, as he immersed himself in the scriptures, began to see growing discrepancies with what the Bible taught and what Rome taught. And the more he immersed himself in the scriptures, the more clear these discrepancies became. He began writing down these inconsistencies. Luther had no intention of leaving the church or starting a a public dispute or creating a worldwide reformation. In fact, he never dreamed what kind of effect these 95 theses would have. He simply wanted to express what he was learning from Scripture and where he saw the church departing from the pure and authoritative Word of God. He could have never foreseen the implications of this event. Unknown to him... Someone had printed copies of his 95 theses that he had nailed to that door Back then the newly invented Gutenberg press was capable of making all kinds of copies And so someone took what he had nailed and began making copies and distributing that around Germany Within weeks Luther found that he had caused quite a stir From the cathedrals and the great stone castles of his homeland, to the pubs and the peasant cottages, everyone was now talking about Martin Luther's views. This launched the Protestant Reformation. While we date the event on October 31, 1517, it's really not an event that can be encapsulated in a single event. There were actually many things that led to the Reformation, and then many decades that involved this wonderful event the seeds of this reformation of church reform were the forerunners to the reformation men like john Wycliffe and john huss who in the 13 and 1400s began to lay the seeds for the reformation then when it actually occurred men like martin luther Ulrich zwingli john calvin Thomas Cranmer, John Knox, John Bunyan, Lady Jane Grey, Hugh Latimer, Nicholas Ridley, men who were martyred for their faith, many other pastors who were burned at the stake under the Bloody Mary. This was, this was the event of the 15 and 1600s. It was an event that began in Germany. It spread to Switzerland. It spread to, to France. France. They crossed the English Channel and went over to the British Isles, to Britain and Scotland, eventually traversing the ocean and coming over to the New World. This was nothing short of a worldwide reformation. As we said last year, and by the way, this is a five-year series. Uh, You may not know that, but we began this series a year ago as we looked at the first part of this. We're going to continue it today, and then you have to come back for parts three, four, and five. So over the next three years, you have to continue to come back. We said that last year there was a number of effects that the Reformation had upon society. It not only produced incredible spiritual and religious changes, this event also had a marked effect upon the economy, upon education, and upon politics. Let me give you some examples of that. Educationally, the Reformation helped people see that learning about God was important. And reading about God in His Word was supremely important. Prior to the Reformation, people did not read the Scriptures in their own language. It was not something they did. The Scriptures were held by the church. And only the priests read the church. That the common person did not have the Word of God in their hands. And so, as a result of the Reformation, there was a universal campaign for literacy. For people to read. And people to specifically read the Scriptures. As a result of this campaign for universal literacy, public education began. And there was classes in reading and writing and math and history and economics and religion. And so, the Reformation had the effect of raising the bar on the importance of education and reading for the purpose of reading the Word of God. So it had a huge effect educationally. The Reformation also had a huge effect politically. And you need to know that in the medieval structure of, of authority, power was usually held by kings. and It was usually held by monarchs who, who wielded absolute authority and absolute power over the kingdoms that they reigned People believed in that day that a king ruled by divine right, and so power was invested in the king and in his monarchy. With the Reformation, though, and the claims of the priesthood of all believers, as understood by the Scriptures, we began to see that there was a a basic recognition of human rights for all people. And there came to be this essential quality among all people, and it led to the creation of a representative form of government of a democracy. We live in a country that's democratic. And the reason we enjoy democracy in this country is in no small part due to the Reformation. It had a huge effect educationally. It had a huge effect politically. Thirdly, it had a huge effect economically. Economically. In medieval Europe... There were basically two classes of people. There were the kings and the nobility, and there were the vassals and the peasants. And that's it. Nothing in between. There were rich people. There were poor people. The rich got richer. The poor got poorer. There was no middle class. But as a result of the Reformation, hard work came to be valued. One of the effects of the Reformation was to show that work has value. All work. Not just the priesthood, but all work. They restored really a, a dignity and a worth to ordinary jobs and to people who were laboring in, in common work. The reformers really brought back the value of work and their successors, the Puritans, really reclaimed the work week of six days and the value of hard work in those six days and showed that that, that work had kingdom value. And so the result of this was a rise of capitalism, of a free market enterprise where economics were, were conducted now in the free market and, and, and capitalism began to become the predominant form of the economy. We in our country enjoy capitalism, and the reason we do is and do no small part to the Reformation. So the Reformation had all these effects politically, economically, Educationally socially it had effect. It, it broke down the barrier between the sacred and the secular prior to the Reformation There was a wall between the priests and the laity Between the sacred and the secular and the Reformation tore that down So the Reformation really dramatically affected the world But nowhere did it affect the world more than in the area of the life of the church Prior to the Reformation, there was no concept of church membership. There was no concept of corporate worship. No concept of preaching the Word of God. No no concept of of Bible reading in the churches. That wasn't there. And all the things that we take for granted today that take place in the life of the church were not present for the most part prior to the Reformation. If you enjoy coming to, to church to hear the Word of God preached, that wouldn't have taken place prior to the Reformation. If you enjoy coming to church and singing songs together with the body of Christ, it's because of the Reformation. In fact, did you know that John Huss was branded a heretic for bringing church singing into the body of Christ? The Scriptures were not read in the language of the common people prior to the Reformation. We do that every Sunday here. We stand to read God's Word. Why? Because we want to hear God speak to us the way we hear Him speak today is through His Word. That didn't take place prior to the Reformation. And so the Reformation dramatically affected how the church conducted itself. But listen, the single most important impact of the Reformation was on the gospel. It was on a recovery of the gospel. And they answered the question clearly and precisely, what must happen for someone to be saved? It's a pretty important question, isn't it? What must I do to be saved? What must I do to be reconciled to a holy God? What must happen in order for sinners to be brought into a right relationship with their creator? What has to happen to make that work? Prior to the Reformation, that answer was mired in superstition. It was mired in legalism. It was mired in all kind of extraneous works an acts that needed to take place according to the church. Rome said in order to be saved, you needed to go through Mary. You needed to practice the sacraments. You needed to go through a priest or the Pope. You needed to follow the, the hierarchy or the structures of the, the medieval church. That's how you were saved. Because in their understanding, grace is mediated through the church. Not a person, not Christ, through the church. And so under Rome, it was salvation plus works. It was grace plus human effort. It was Christ plus Mary, Christ plus the priest, Christ plus the sacraments. It was scripture plus tradition and the Pope and adherence to the mass. That's where salvation came from. It came from the church. Grace was mediated through the church in assistance with your works that then supposedly brought about Salvation. And the reformers came along and they said, No, it's by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to the scriptures alone, to the glory of God alone. This was the effect of the Reformation. They, they really taught the plain message of the scriptures and they restored the church to the pristine teaching of the scriptures. They cleared away the rubble, all the extraneous stuff that had accumulated around the gospel. They cleared that away so that we could see the clear and unadulterated truth about how someone is restored to a relationship with God. In the wake of this incredible upheaval, those in the Protestant Reformation had to define what they believed. They were known as the Protestants, they were known what they were against. Just read the councils, just read the declarations from the Pope, just read what the medieval Catholic Church taught. Those are the things they were against, but they weren't known for the things that they were for. And so the result of the Reformation forced them to define and to quantify what they believed. And the effect of that was a clear summary of the Protestant Gospel in the form of the five solas. The word sola is the, word, uh, the Latin word that means alone or only. And so, it is through these five solas that we begin to understand what Protestantism came to to teach, and we understand the clarity of the Word of God and the clarity of the Gospel. Now, let me just review for you what these are. First of all, from last year, remember we said that the first sola is sola scriptura. Sola scriptura, Scripture alone. And as I said, Rome believed that it was Scripture's plus. It was the Scripture's and- It was scriptures and something else. It was scripture and tradition. It was scripture and the Pope. It was scripture and the sacraments. It was scripture and the church councils. It was scripture and the hierarchical system. It was scripture plus. And the reformers said, no, it is the word of God alone. that tells us how to be right with God. It is the Word of God alone that teaches us the true gospel. It is the Word of God alone that tells us what God wants to know about us and Him. You see, they recognize the power of the Word, the sufficiency of the Word, the authority of the Word, the infallibility of the Word, the inerrancy of the Word. and It is that which they based their teachings upon. The second sola is Solus Christus. It is this one that we're going to look at for a few moments this morning. Christ alone As I said, Rome wanted to add all kinds of things to salvation They wanted to add good works They wanted to add church adherence They wanted to add baptism, marriage, last rites, indulgences, Mary, the treasury of merit, purgatory They wanted to add all these extraneous things to the gospel And they would say, if you want to be right with God, you have to do these things it's, Oh, it's by grace, and it's by faith, and it's through Christ But it's not in those alone you have to do all these other things as well. and the reformers having studied the scriptures said no it's through christ and christ alone. we'll talk more on that in a minute. third the third sola is sola fide faith alone. it's through faith alone. it's not faithless works. it's not something you do to to earn god's favor or merit his grace it is by faith alone. That a sinner is justified. And by the way, they said that this faith comes only from God himself. This is not your faith that you conjure up to receive Christ. It is a faith that is granted to you by Christ as a gift from God. It is an act of his grace. Even the faith that you believe with is from God himself. The fourth sola is sola gratia. Grace alone. It is by grace alone that we are saved. We are saved by God's grace, not by our work, not by our merit. God did not look down the tunnel of time and see how you and I were going to respond and then rewind the tape and choose you. That's not how it works. He didn't look down the corridor of time and say, Wow, that's going to be a really good person. They're going to have faith in me. I will choose them. That is not how it works. The reformers recognize that it's all of grace. It's all of God's kindness. That God looked down the corridor of time and said, I will choose to set my affections upon this one. Sola gratia. And if you're here this morning and you believe in Christ, it is only because God gives you the ability to believe. If you're here this morning and you have faith in Christ, it's only because God has given you the ability to have faith. If you're here this morning and you've chosen Christ, it is only because He first chose you in Christ. If you're here this morning and you love Christ, it's only because He first loved you. There's grace. All of grace. Last. Soli deo gloria. For the glory of God alone. That God did all these things solely for His glory. That God did all these things to display His majesty. Not for us to pat ourselves on the back. Not for us to say, yep, I'm good to go. Have confidence in our abilities. But for God to say, no, it's through Christ alone. For His glory alone that He has done this work in our hearts. So if you can imagine a, a structure that has a foundation and three pillars and a roof. That's how we can imagine the reformation. There was the the, the foundation, which is the scriptures and three pillars, sola fide, sola gratia, solus Christus, with a roof all pointing to the glory of God alone. And these doctrines shook the world. These doctrines literally turned the world upside down. And for a few moments this morning, I want to focus us on the second one, on Solus Christus, or Solo Christo. As I said, the medieval church of that day, and it was a church that had been around for 600 years. This was a well-established entity that for all of those years was teaching that you had to add human achievement to your salvation. That it wasn't sufficient for Christ alone That this kind of salvation was won by human merit through the seven sacraments, which are baptism as an infant, confirmation as a youth, marriage, extreme unction, which is also known as the last rites, ordination, confession of sin to a priest, and taking the Eucharist. These were the means of grace. And if you performed these acts, and if you engaged in these works, they understood that grace was transferred to you, and therefore you were saved. This was the issue. This was the belief that the church was able to affect salvation also by tapping into the treasury of merit. Do you know what the treasury of merit is? It is the belief that there are saints, kind of super saints, who conducted themselves in such a great way and such a... um, Appropriate way in this life that they have extra grace to give and they've stored up this grace in this treasury of merit and the way that we as lesser people lesser sinners lesser Christians tap into that is through the sacraments you get to tap into that grace and you get to have that grace given to you or revealed to you which combines with your human works then to bring about your salvation this is what was taught for 600 years. And the reformers then began to study the scriptures, and they began to see that at the centre of the whole scriptures was a person. One person. Jesus Christ. And the clear testimony of the scriptures was that He and He alone is the basis of our salvation. It is through Christ alone. He alone is our Savior. He alone is our sacrifice. He alone is our mediator. Because it was his, his sinless life. It was His substitutionary atonement. It was His death. It was His resurrection. It was His sacrifice on the cross alone that accomplished redemption for us. This is what the Scriptures teach. John 14, verse 6. You know it well. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, the truth. And the life, no one comes to the Father but through me. There's only one way. It's only through Jesus Christ. Acts 4.12, and by the way, we're getting there. Acts 4.12 says, There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. It's through Christ alone. First Timothy 2, verse 5 says, There's one God, and there's one mediator between God and men, the man, Jesus Christ. This is the clear teaching of Scripture. The salvation comes through Christ alone. He's our prophet. He's our priest. He's our king. We need no other prophets to reveal God to us. We need no other priests to mediate God's salvation to us. We need no other kings to rule over us. Christ is all and in all and for us in the gospel. And that is the heart and the soul of the Reformation. Solus Christus. And they had to get it right. Because the lives of people hang in the balance. And I would submit to you today that we have to get it right today as well. These five solas, you need to know, are under attack today. And that's why I want us to study church history. I want to to expose us to these things that have taken place in the last 2,000 years. Because history repeats itself. And the same attacks against these five solas that were taking place then are taking place now. All five of these are being attacked today, as is Solus Christus. It's attacked on many fronts. I want to give you some examples of ways that this sola is being attacked and some things that you need to be aware of. You can think of these yourself. One evidence of this is the fact that most people believe they're good enough to get into heaven on their own. Right? Just talk to anybody about where they're at with God and if they think they're going to heaven. And the answer will uh, almost certainly be, yeah, of course I'm going to heaven because I'm a good person. I'm a good person. I don't do bad things. I mean, every once in a while I do some bad things. But I I'm not like Hitler or those really bad guys. I'm not going to hell. I'm going to heaven because I'm a good person. That's an attack on soulless Christus. Romans 3.10 says there are none righteous. None righteous it's also being attacked another example by religious pluralism religious pluralism is the belief that eventually all roads lead to god it's the understanding that basically god is the same god you can call him allah or you can call him Buddha or you can call him Confucius or Mother Nature. He's got different names, but they're basically all the same God and all paths lead up the same mountain and all roads lead to heaven. And there are many ways to knowing God and there are many religions that teach the same truth. They get their different ways, but they all end up in the same place. That's an attack on Solus Christus. No, they don't. Another evidence of this. This is, to me, perhaps the most sad. There's an attack on Solus Christus coming from with, inside the church today. I understand when, when the world attacks us, and I understand when secularism attacks us. I, I get that. That's the world that we live in. But this is being attacked from within the church, inside the church. And not just liberal churches, evangelical churches. And I use the term loosely. We don't need to look back 500 years to see an attack on Solus Christus. We just need to look around. We just need to read. We just need to hear what's being said today within many circles, within evangelicalism, to hear that Solus Christus is being attacked. Let me give you some examples. Dallas Willard, a former professor at USC, and a Southern Baptist, said this. I'm happy for God to save anyone he wants in any way he can. It is possible for someone who does not know Jesus to be saved really that's not what I've read in the scriptures Joel Osteen pastoring the largest church in America said on Larry King Live you know you know I'm very careful about saying who would and wouldn't go to heaven I don't know I spent a lot of time in India with my father I don't know all about their religion but I know they love God I don't know. I've seen their sincerity, so I don't know. I know for sure what the Bible teaches. I want to have a relationship with Jesus. There's one thing he knows. He doesn't know. There's one thing we agree with him on. He doesn't know because that's not what the Scriptures teach. The Scriptures teach it's through Christ alone. And so if you can say, well, all these people in India who are entrenched in Hinduism are going to heaven anyway because it doesn't really matter, that's an attack on Solus Christus. Let's bring it a little closer to home. Rob Bell. At Mars Hill Bible Church. In his preface to Love Wins, says a staggering number of people have been taught that a select few select Christians will spend forever in a peaceful, joyous place called heaven while the rest of humanity spends forever in torment and punishment in hell with no chance of anything better. This is misguided and toxic and ultimately subverts the contagious spread of Jesus' message of love, peace, and forgiveness. Really? A message that says there's a narrow way that leads to life and a broad way that leads to destruction is, quote, toxic? You're calling the words of Christ toxic? He says on page 155 of the book, what Jesus does is declare that he and he alone is saving everybody. Really? He's saving everybody. The gospel is for everybody, but he's not saving everybody until people come to bow the knee before Jesus Christ. Listen, that is universalism. And it's been said before, if it looks like a duck and swims like a duck and quacks like a duck, it's a duck. If it looks and smells like universalism, it's universalism. He goes on to say in his promo video for the book. Then there's the question, behind the question, the real question what is God like? Because millions and millions of people were taught that the primary message, the center of the gospel of Jesus, is that God is going to send you to hell unless you believe in Jesus. And so what gets subtly caught and taught is that Jesus rescues you from God. But what kind of God is that? That you would need to be rescued from this God. Last time I checked, that's the gospel. That if you don't embrace Jesus Christ, you will not be with him for eternity. Last time I checked, that's what the scriptures teach. So you have a man, a false teacher, a heretic, denying soulless Christus. And it was in our backyard for many, many years. Is this relevant? You better believe this is relevant. Is this important for us to get right? You better believe it's important for us to get right. Because all of these amount to specifically an attack upon the exclusivity of Jesus Christ. And so, for a few moments this morning, I want to take you to a passage that is probably the most definitive statement in the New Testament on the exclusivity of of Christ, It is a passage that you probably know well, and it is a clear proclamation of Solus Christus. It's Acts chapter 4. Let me set the context for you. You remember in Acts chapter 1, Christ has ascended back to heaven. He has accomplished death on the cross. He has been raised to life. He spent 40 days here upon the earth with his disciples. He ascended back into heaven. At the end of chapter 1, the disciples chose a replacement for Judas, a man by the name of Matthias. And then in Acts chapter 2, the church is born. Pentecost happens. The Holy Spirit, whom, whom Christ promised would come, actually came. And Christ gave the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2. And suddenly they're, they're speaking in tongues. There's, there's flames of fire distributing themselves on each of the people. They begin speaking in tongues, legitimate tongues, real languages. And people began to hear the gospel being preached in their own language. And they began asking, what's going on here? What's taking place here? And Peter stands up and he preaches the first Christian sermon. The first sermon in the church. And he begins to preach about Christ and his exclusivity and his death and his resurrection. And at the end of that powerful message, 3,000 people were pierced in their heart and came to Christ. And they said, what should we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. The church is born. Over in Acts chapter 3, Peter and John then were going to the the temple at the ninth hour, the hour of prayer. And they began going there to, to minister to the people. And suddenly they saw a lame man, a man who was lame from his mother's womb, it says in Acts 3, 2. He was being carried to the temple where he would sit and ask for alms. Peter and John preached the gospel to him. They made him walk. They healed him. They made him stand. They made him arise and begin to walk. They performed a a miracle. And Peter said to him in Acts 3, verse 6, I don't have silver or gold, but what I do have I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ. Walk. They perform a miracle. And Peter then took the opportunity to preach once again on Christ. He began to encourage and exhort the people who were standing there to come to Christ. He urged them to repent. That didn't sit well with the Jewish leaders. This was beginning to infringe on their territory. And so they're arrested. Acts chapter 4. Verse 1 says, As they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple guard, the Sadducees came upon them, being greatly disturbed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And so they took them. They arrested them. Verse 3 says, They laid hands on them and put them in jail until the next day, for it was already evening. They were arrested for performing a miracle and proclaiming Christ. Well, the next morning... They gather Peter and John around them. They begin to interrogate them. And they begin to question them. What are you doing? Whose power are you doing this in? And whose name is this you are speaking about? They're being interrogated. And Peter turns the tables on them. And he begins to interrogate them. That Jesus that you're speaking about? Yeah, the one that you crucified? He's the Savior. He's the Redeemer. And He's the one in whose name that we healed this lame man. He urges them to come to Christ. He he urges them to repent, to embrace the exclusivity of Jesus Christ. And then he says, starting in verse 8, and this is where we want to pick up the account. Follow along as I read verse 8. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, If we are on trial today for a benefit done to a sick man as to how this man has been made well, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead by this man, this man stands here before you in good health. He is the stone which was rejected by you, the builders, but which became The cornerstone. See what he's doing? He's turning the tables. They brought them before them to interrogate them. He begins interrogating them and saying, listen, this is what you've done to Christ. He is the Savior. He is the Nazarene. He is the Messiah whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead. This man, the lame man, stands here because of the power of Jesus Christ. He's preaching Christ. And then verse 12. Says, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. So not only does he answer their question about whose power has he done this in, he turns the tables and he begins to exhort them that this Christ is the only one in whom salvation will be found. And what I want to do for the time that we have remaining for just a few more minutes is to give you three points. I want you to see the certainty, the exclusivity, and the necessity of salvation in Christ. Because it gets to the heart and the soul of soulless Christus. So let's look first at number one. The certainty of salvation in Christ. The certainty of salvation. I want you to look at verse 12. It says, and there is salvation in no one else. See what he's about to do is he's about to exclaim the, uh, proclaim the exclusivity of salvation in Christ, but he does, before he does that, he affirms that the, the certainty of salvation. He says, "There is salvation. There is salvation. Not there will be. Not that you have to work for it. Not that you have to do something to bring it about. No, it is a present reality. It has been accomplished. It has been provided. It is a certainty. This has happened. There is salvation. There's salvation. It's a term we use a lot. It's a term that is kind of a Christianese term. What does salvation mean? Well, in its most literal sense, it means to be rescued from physical harm. Did you know that? The word salvation itself, it means to be rescued from physical harm. And that's the way the word is actually used in Scripture. Let me give you a couple of examples. In Matthew 8, verse 25, this same word salvation is used in reference to being saved physically. You remember the account? Jesus was in the boat with his disciples. They were on the lake. And a great storm arose on the sea. The, the boat was being covered with waves. The winds whipped up. This was a threatening place. They began to become fearful. They began to, began to be very terrified and afraid that the, the ship would go down. Their lives were in jeopardy. They're afraid. They're scared. And they cry out to Jesus, save us. They needed physical Rescuing they need a deliverance from impending death That's what the word means to be delivered from literal physical impending death Same thing in peter do you remember in matthew matthew 14 verse 30 When peter asked to walk on the water with jesus remember what happened He stepped out in the boat and for a few minutes. He's doing fine And suddenly he looks around him and he sees the wind and he sees the waves and suddenly he becomes frightened He becomes very afraid because he is about to sink and he cries out to Jesus, Lord, save me. Rescue from physical threat. That's what the word salvation means. To be rescued from danger. You ever been in a circumstance where you needed to be rescued from physical danger? Where your life was in jeopardy? The word also has a similar meaning spiritually. To be rescued Spiritually, to be rescued from what threatens us spiritually. We need to be saved. The question is, what do we need to be saved from? Have you ever thought about that? What do you need to be saved from? Certainly, we need to be saved from our sin, and certainly, we need to be saved from hell. But have you ever thought about the fact that we need to be saved from God Himself? Do you understand that that's part of the gospel? That we need rescuing from God Himself. Because God in His holiness and His purity, He cannot look upon that which is sinful. He cannot have a relationship with that which is sinful. In fact, He must pour out His judgment upon that which is sinful. He must pour out His wrath. And so at the heart and the core of salvation is the fact that we need to be rescued from God. We need to be rescued from His wrath and His judgment because we are His enemy prior to coming to Christ. We need to be saved from God. And this is what Martin Luther came to realize. Prior to his conversion, he tried everything to get himself saved. At the age of 21, he was caught in a rainstorm and he was nearly hit by a lightning bolt. He was walking along the way there's a storm, lightning bolt flashes. He almost gets struck by the lightning. He has this horrible vision of hell and in terror he cries out to Saint Anne to help him. And he says at that moment, I will go become a monk. God got his attention through the lightning bolt. He says I'm going to go become a monk. I'm going to go be a priest. He entered the monastery that very week and he tried everything to please God. He fasted, he prayed, he slept without blankets. He deprived himself of all his worldly comforts. He tried everything to get himself saved. He said this, quote, If ever a monk got to heaven by monkery, it was I. He tried everything. No matter how hard he tried, those efforts could not assuage his guilt. Fast forward five years. He traveled to Rome. Where he thought he could find peace with God. And so he began to try to appropriate the merit of the saints. Remember I told you about the treasury of merit. This belief that there's grace stored up by the saints and we tap into that. That's what he tried. He traveled to Rome. And he tried to appropriate this merit of the saints. He went and viewed supposed relics. The twig from the burning bush, supposedly. He went and viewed one of the coins, supposedly, that Judas paid in his treachery against Christ. He attended mass, he visited the holy sites, but he says, I still felt alienated. I I still felt no satisfaction in my relationship with God. A year later, in 1511, he traveled to Wittenberg, where he began to seek peace with God through confession of sin to the priests. And so he, he understood that by the church's teaching, he needed to confess his sins. And so sometimes he spent up to six hours a day. How would you like to be the priest in that confession booth? Six hours a day confessing his sin. And none of it worked. He still felt God's anger. He still felt no peace with God. He still felt a distance between him and God. He, he still was unable to, to find the satisfaction he was looking for, to find the peace, to find the salvation that he was so desperately longing for. And the turning point came for him in the years later as he began to study the word and he came to realize the true gospel. And he came to realize that true salvation is found in Jesus Christ alone. And he said this. He says, if you have a true faith that Christ is your savior then at once you have a gracious God. For faith leads you in Him and opens up God's heart and will that you should see pure grace and should look upon His fatherly, friendly heart in which there's no anger or no unrighteousness. He found what He was looking for. Where? In Christ. In Christ alone. So back in Acts chapter 4, verse 12, where it says, There is salvation in no one else the reality is that there is salvation there is salvation it is certain because christ is that savior that god sent god to save us from god that's the gospel it's a divine certainty number two i want you to see the exclusivity of salvation in christ Not only the certainty, I want you to see the the exclusivity of salvation in Christ. Verse 12, he says, There is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. He says there's no other way, Peter does. Speaking to these hardened Jewish leaders, he appeals to them. And he knows the emptiness of their Jewish tradition. He knows the emptiness of their religion. He knows the emptiness of of Judaism. He knows the emptiness of all this Pharisaic adherence to the law and everything that they were promoting as the way to be saved. He goes to them and says, listen, Jews, the only way you're going to come to what you're looking for is by salvation through Christ. For there's no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. Listen. Listen. There is no drop of salvation outside of Christ. None. There is no way to be reconciled to God outside of Christ. There is no way to find the mercy and the grace and the forgiveness that you're looking for outside of Christ. Because, he says, there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. What is the name? Look up in verse 10. He's already told us in verse 10, let it be known to you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ, it's the same name. It's a person. It's not a religion. It's not a cause. It's not your own efforts. It's not your goodness, your church membership, your baptism. None of that saves you. It is in Christ, in Christ alone. Why? Let me just briefly suggest to you three reasons. First, He's the only Savior. He's the only Savior. He's the only God-man. He's the only one who's 100% God and 100% man brought together in one person. He had to be fully God. He had to be fully man. And the only person who's ever done that is Christ alone. He is the incarnate God. The theanthropic man. The God-man brought together in one person. He's fully God. He had divine claims. He had divine names. He had divine attributes. He performed divine works. He's fully God. And he's fully human. He had a human birth. He had human growth and development. He had a human body. He had a human emotions. He's fully God. He's fully man. And only he could represent God perfectly and humanity perfectly. He's the only Savior. Secondly, he's the only sacrifice. He's the only sacrifice. He is the only sacrifice. There is no other one who has laid down his life in order to achieve our forgiveness and our salvation. There's no other one. His death was substitutionary. He took our place. His death was penal. He paid the price. He took the wrath that we deserved. And his death was complete. There's no other sacrifice that needs to be made. He sat down at the right hand of God when he completed his sacrifice once for all. You know, the only piece of furniture missing from the temple was a chair. Because the priests never sat down. Their work was never finished. But Christ sat down. He's the only sacrifice. Thirdly, he's the only mediator. He's the only mediator. First Timothy 2.5 says there's one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. He's the only Savior. He's the only sacrifice. He's the only mediator. There is no other way to be saved. You say, Todd, man, you're up there wearing a suit and tie. You are so outdated. You are so out of touch and you are so intolerant. Yep. And so was Christ. Because he said, I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the father but through me. You need to be gracious about this. You need to be kind about this. I'm not saying we need to be mean about this. But this message is an intolerant message. But it is the message of the Scriptures. Number three, the necessity of salvation in Christ. We've seen the certainty of it. We've seen the exclusivity of it. Third is the necessity of it. Verse 12, there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. By which we must be saved. Notice the must. It is necessary. It is a a necessity that we be saved. It it is required of us to be saved. And friends, this is your greatest need. This is your absolute greatest need. It is not financial. It is not relational. It is not work. It is not social. Your greatest need is spiritual. That's why he says you must be saved. And by the way, the verb be saved is passive. Did you notice that? You must be saved. Notice it doesn't say you must save yourself or you must engage in works to get yourself saved or you must engage in a religion that will help you get yourself saved. No, we must be saved. Passive. You can't do anything about it. But Christ can. Friends, that, that is the message of solus Christus. He is the only way. There is no other way to the Father. There is no other way to heaven. There is no other way to peace and satisfaction and forgiveness save the Lord Jesus Christ. So I ask you this morning are you saved? Are you saved? Have you embraced Christ? Do you know without a shadow of a doubt? that you are saved because you are banking on his finished work. Not your religion, not your righteousness, not your good works, but Christ alone. This is why we need to study the Reformation. Father, We need to hear this message preached over and over and over again. It is the message that Christ himself preached. It is the message the reformers preached. And we stand on their shoulders. In a long line of godly men and women. We too want to hold high. The exclusivity. Of Jesus Christ. Lord, if there are some this morning who have never bowed the knee, would you bring them to Christ? Would they recognize their need for a Savior? And when they run from their human efforts to try and merit your grace, may they run to the only Savior, the one who is able to forgive and redeem and save. So, Father, we thank you for Jesus Christ. We thank you for his life, his death, his resurrection, and the fact that he's coming again for us. May we be ready. In his name we pray. Amen.